Are you going to have a seat? Church, it's good to be with you. My name is Will Boston. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at the Austin Stone. There's our North Congregation pastor, and I'm just really glad that you've made it here this morning, that you've gathered with this group of saints. And we have some, you know, a lot of junior high guests here right in the front, and just want to tell you, yes, I see you. And truly, it was, it was, you know, it was a number of years now, but I sat in that seat. And uh, I remember those days. And I uh, just want you to be reminded very overtly in front of our whole congregation that your faith as a junior high kid is not junior high, uh, it's not lesser than faith. Okay, you can have real faith in Jesus, really walk with him right in the stage of life, the season of life that you're in. Okay, I just want to encourage you in that way. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to, to Hebrews chapter 9. That's where we're going to be today. So if you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Or if you got one of the Hebrews guides, you can turn to that section. If you're visiting today, maybe today is the first time you've ever come and, and been a part of a gathering of the Austin Stone. I mean, we are so glad that you came. I really am. We love when people visit and come and check out this community of believers. And, uh, or, or maybe you just haven't been here for the last couple of weeks and you don't know that we're back into this study of Hebrews. Hebrews, right in the middle of this book, okay? And there are volumes that can and have been written about these first eight chapters. There, there are volumes and volumes of writing about these first eight chapters leading up to where we are here in chapter nine. But all of it can also be boiled down into this deeply powerful short sentence. All of it can be boiled down into this, Jesus is better, Okay? We've said that for the last few weeks because it's true when you read this letter written to these, these largely first century Jewish Christians, that's who the main audience was for the author of Hebrews, we see that that's the argument that the author is making that he's trying so hard to get across is that Jesus is better. And in this case, he's the better high priest, which spoke you know, uniquely to these first century Jewish Christians. Last week, Ross summed up chapter 8. If you missed chapter 8, you can get the whole thing in this. You know, you should go back and listen to it. But this is what he was saying. Jesus is a better priest who provides a better place and secures a better promise. Okay, a better priest provides a better place, secures a better promise. What, what, what we're going to do in this passage today, what we're seeing in this passage today is why the promise is better. Why is this promise that Jesus makes, the covenant that he makes with us better? And it's because he promises to deal with something that isn't a promise that's unique or only for first century Jewish Christians so far away. It's a problem that's being addressed that's a problem for every human being of every century and every life stage. Junior high guys and gals, that problem is the problem of guilt a guilty conscience. And everywhere I turn this week, I have, I truly everywhere I'm turning, I'm seeing people trying to deal with their guilt. I see it in Ed Sheeran, okay? Well, I hear it in Ed Sheeran uh, more. He released a new album, and I could have picked any song from that album, any song and told you the lyrics from them and seen that he's dealing with guilt. Look at, look at what he says in this one song. I can't help myself but cry every time that I realize. Maybe I'll never find my smile. But who's to blame? Well, that's on me. His guilt, his issue, okay? Or if you're more of a Taylor Swift slash Kansas City Chiefs fan, because they're the same now. Uh, 
It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. At tea time, everybody agrees. Listen to what she says. I'll stare directly at the sun, which is not good for you, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting always rooting for the anti-hero. So you see it in these young musicians. You see it in these old playwrights. I see it in old playwrights. Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth, she famously wanders the halls at night trying to get out from her imaginary bloodstains from her hands. Why? Because she's dealing with her guilty conscience. I see it in myself. See myself trying to deal with guilt in moments when I'm uber critical of other people around me for tiny things that they do wrong because I cannot stand the wrong things that I know I've done. I see it in my kids. My three-year-old, she's trying to get the pen off of something that she wasn't supposed to draw on. And with this childlike vulnerability, she's just standing there in the kitchen. I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying to fix it, Dad. You see, guilt is what our conscience, our sort of internal judicial system, feels like. That's what it feels when we sense that we have failed to meet some standard. Guilt is the sense that you have failed to meet some standard, and your conscience gives you that. Sometimes we deal with that by trying to, like my daughter, just fix and work and work and work to fix the thing that we've done wrong. Sometimes we try to deal with it by numbing it. We try to numb that sense of guilt in us. Maybe if I watch another episode, or maybe if I eat another thing, or drink enough, or maybe if I work enough, or maybe if I play well enough in this game, then, then maybe this sense of guilt will be quiet long enough for me to be able to go to sleep tonight. Or sometimes we deal with our guilt by just trying to erase or ignore the standard altogether. We pretend there is no standard. And so I can pretend like I have no guilt. But we do. We still have guilt. And, and there's seeming like endless Uh, standards that we could try to live up to, and so endless reasons why you might feel guilty. There's a standard set by your parents or your family. There's a standard set by your friends. There's a standard set by your company or by our government or by a school. Some millions of reasons for you to feel a sense of failing to meet a standard. It might, and maybe even especially be, feeling a sense of failing to meet the standards of whatever the internet says or some social media algorithm produces. And so uh, you can loosely call that the standard of society when in reality it might just be loud people with Wi-Fi, you know, a few of them. But in our right mind, track with me, in our right mind, we know that some of these are false standards. They're inhuman and they're irrelevant metrics for what you ought to be as a human being. In your right mind, you know that, but you feel guilt, you feel real guilt even when it's a false standard. Because instinctively, in us, we will try to live up to some standard. Either because we know or we can't stand the fact that there is an ultimate standard. There is a true standard of what we ought to be as human beings. Only it's not set by any human being or set of human beings. It's set by God. That's who sets the standard. His righteousness, his justice, his commands, his word sets the standard that we ought to be as human beings. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
and yet we know that we're not. So we have guilt. And that's not just fabricated guilt, that's real guilt, a sense of failure. And related to guilt is, a, is shame. Shame and guilt are not the exact same thing. They're pretty related. Okay, shame is, is a sense of failure in the eyes of another. Okay, have you ever felt shame? It's bestowed on you from somebody. In their eyes, you have shame. And that's exactly what Hebrews 4 is saying is happening. Hebrews 4 says we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of the one to whom we must give an account. That's where our souls stand today. And in that account, we would have to admit, if you are honest with yourself, that you are not meeting the standard. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is what Romans tells us. And in this case, we feel guilty because we are guilty. Okay? But the problem with guilt is not that we just, not just that it feels bad. It's not just that it feels bad. The problem is that it reflects the reality that our failure to meet God's standard rightfully and justly separates us from God's presence, which, if you did not know, is the very thing that you were made for, that you long for. People all over the world are trying to ignore that standard or numb that guilt from not meeting the standard, or they're trying to do enough good things. To to get the guilt to go away. Religious systems throughout history have been doing just that. They're, They're not wrong for thinking that they're guilty, but they're wrong for how they're trying to atone for their guilt. The priest that they are turning to to resolve that guilt. What God is saying in Hebrews 9 is that there's only one priest, one way and one way only, that that guilt is going to be dealt with. The guilt that you have before him. One way to have a perfect conscience. So Hebrews 9 is teaching us this in, in one sentence. Jesus is the perfect high priest who deals perfectly with our guilt and gives us perfect freedom to draw near to God, the thing, the place that your soul is longing to be the most. And so here's how we're going to break down this passage. We're going to look at the limits of lesser priests that we see. We're going to look at the power of the perfect priest. And then we're going to see how we can live in that power, okay? So the limits of, the power of, and then how we live in that, okay? And so to see why Jesus is the perfect priest, why his promise is better, we need to first see the limits of lesser priests established in the first, Testament, the first Old Testament covenant. Okay, so Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1. And I know these are long sections, so go ahead and decide to engage your mind all the way through the section so that you can see what's being said here, okay? Verse 1, it says, Now even the first covenant, that first promise, had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna. These are all just Old Testament Uh, artifacts of sorts, okay? And Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant that Moses received on the mountaintop, okay? Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. What the author is describing here 
So you just heard that description. He's describing something, the tabernacle that God gave the instructions for in the book of Exodus. So if you read through this Old Testament passage, you're going to see this, this description, the instructions for how to build this place. And that place was the centerpiece of worship in the lives of God's people. For the Israelites, that was it. That was the centerpiece of it all. But for this sermon letter, which is what Hebrews is, it's more like a, it's like a letter written to be a sermon. The author was like, I don't have time to go into more detail on all this furniture and all these staffs that are budding and tablets and stuff. I don't have time to go into that in detail right now. And I'm going to tell you this morning, we don't have time either. Okay. So, um, but what it does is paint a picture of a place, a sanctuary. And the big deal here, the big idea he's getting across is that there's two sections in that sanctuary. That's what you need to kind of keep in your mind. There's two sections, each prepared specifically. So keep reading now in verse 6. It says, these preparations having thus been made, okay, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. What is he talking about? He's saying there's a design In this tabernacle, this tent, God is teaching us something. He's teaching us the very thing that we were made for. Remember, you're made for God's presence. Psalm 1611 says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In his presence is the fullness of joy. You're looking for the maximum amount of enjoyment as a human being. It's only going to be found in God's presence. Okay, And so that very thing we were made for is the one thing that we cannot have. The one place we most long to be is the one place that we cannot go. None of us have seen the tabernacle. Now you, you're like, I have a study Bible. I've seen that picture that they drew. You know, That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, You've seen a rendering of the tabernacle maybe. But none of us have seen it with our eyes. Yet, don't we feel the very thing that the Israelites were seeing every day, feeling every day when they would walk past this tabernacle? It's the centerpiece of their life. They walk past it. They would see it, and they would feel something constantly that we feel still today, that my life is not what it ought to be. I feel like I need to do more, know more, be more. Somehow I meant for more, and the more that I meant for is in that place, and I cannot go there. So if you're ever feeling that ache in you, you're feeling exactly the design of the tabernacle. So in the instructions regarding the tabernacle, only the high priest could enter that space. But even for him, there were serious limitations on what he, when he could go only once a year, what he was doing in there. It wasn't like he was hanging out. They tied a rope to his leg in case he did something wrong and died in there. and They could drag him out because they couldn't go in. And so there's limitations, not just on him, but on the service that he could render for the people he represented. Listen to the limitations of his service. In verse 9, it says, according to this arrangement, this first covenant, first promise arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what he's saying is these lesser priests offered lesser sacrifices in a lesser sanctuary. And what's the result? 
a lesser impact, a limited impact. They offer gifts and sacrifices that what? Cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Inside of these worshipers, they still have an awareness of their guilt. Now think for a moment about the lesser priests that we look to. People or things that you turn to. Not somebody else, not people in the Bible. You turn to these lesser people or things to bridge the gap between who you are and who you ought to be. Think about the lesser priests that you turn to. We don't kill bulls or goats and sprinkle their blood on things. But we do make sacrifices, don't we? We make promises to God, to our parents, to our friends, to our coaches, to our bosses, to whoever it is that you are looking to not be shamed in front of. We make promises that I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to be like that anymore. I'm going to do better next time. We try to do good stuff and balance it out and never tell anybody the wrong stuff. We just say, hey, here, I did good stuff. And inside your heart, you're trying to appease this guilt. It's turning to a lesser priest. Or we try to get the right concoction of status or influence or position or possessions that make us feel like we are what we ought to be. Maybe if I made more money, if I had a better job, if I lived in a better neighborhood, if I had better friends, whatever your thing is, then I would feel like I'm what I ought to be. We look to our kids, our coworkers, we look to influencers or gurus to make us feel better. And you know what? That's all that they can do. That's all they can do. Because these lesser priests that we have, these lesser priests of the tabernacle can only deal in externalities. They couldn't remove the guilt of the worshipers. So they could never deal with the greatest longing that we have, which is not just to feel better, but to actually enter into the presence of our God. And so they, they can, in the words of Hebrews 10, never make us perfect. So the redemption they offer is both surface level and temporary. The Israelites who were, you know, they're going to these lesser priests they were ceremonially clean afterwards. That means they were clean on the outside. They could function, but the outside was not where the guilt was coming from. It never was where the guilt was coming from. All throughout the Old Testament, you're seeing God pointing to this over and over again. I'm after your hearts. I'm after your hearts. I'm after your hearts. And what does Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew 15? He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. Okay, it's a little biology lesson, okay? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And so what, is, what Jesus is telling us is what the whole Bible is telling us, that our guilt is deeper than these lesser priests could ever reach. They can't clean that deep. Jesus explains that sick people, they don't need good advice or better coaching or more self-esteem. They need a doctor. 
Someone who can heal the depth of their brokenness. And so this is why Jesus is the perfect, unlimited priest. He, does, he doesn't just know where the problem is. He can actually do something about your problem. Okay? So look, those are, that's the limits of the lesser priests. They can't purify the conscience. Look at the power of the perfect priest. In verse 11, we're going to keep reading. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. You know, good things have come. And Jesus is the high priest of them. Okay, but when he appeared, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not temporary, eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if they're doing something, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? This is the power of the perfect priest. He could do what the lesser priestess is saying. He can do what they never could do. Make a sacrifice that actually deals with your guilt, that purifies our consciences, okay? How does it do that? Don't just, don't just say, okay, cool, I guess Jesus is great. That's not actually going to change your life. You need to let the truth kind of get down in and mess with your current worship model that you have. Okay, how does Jesus do this? By offering a greater sacrifice and entering a greater sanctuary. Remember these old, old covenant priests, they were offering sacrifices and entering a sanctuary. Jesus offers a better sacrifice in a greater sanctuary. Okay, look, he's, he didn't enter into a tabernacle built by human beings. No human hand constructed the thing that he's entered into. He went directly into the presence of God beyond the realm of this creation. What does that mean? My brain, my limited finite brain has a, a little bit of trouble conceiving beyond the realm of this creation. But that's where God's presence fully is and where I long to be. And Jesus actually entered into that place. The problem with all these lesser priests, don't you see it? They've never been there. They've only been in the shadow of it. Think about a place, just, just a stadium, okay, because those are a big deal every Saturday, all right, because college football. Um, and so you, you go and you stand in the shadow of that stadium. Were you in that place? No, you were in the shadow of it. This is basic knowledge, okay? And so they've only ever been in the shadow. Jesus is the perfect priest because he's able to enter. And not only that, the wonder of his priesthood. You know what's crazy about Jesus' priesthood is this. He's not just able to enter in. He's able to make it such that we will one day enter in. He can bring us with him. He's got that kind of authority. Okay, so he goes into this ultimate sanctuary as our high priest, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood. Why blood? Have you ever thought about that? 
In my neighborhood, Halloween starts as soon as it's less than 100 degrees, okay? So like a couple months ago, they put up all the Halloween stuff, okay? And it's honestly pretty terrifying for my kids. So I have to take a certain route through our neighborhood so they don't see crazy realistic looking things that have blood all over them, okay? And so it's like, that's a, there's a lot of blood at Halloween. What's the deal with blood? Why is blood involved with this? We sing, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Why blood? What is it about blood? It is his life. That is what your blood represents. It represents your life. So these old covenant priests, you see what they were doing? They were carrying with them into the sanctuary the the lives of these animals, saying, these animals' lives for my people's lives. What Jesus does is he brings his own life into into the sanctuary. He says, my life for their life. My life. Not some animal, not some bull, not some goat. My life for their lives. The theological term for this is substitutionary atonement. Okay? Don't black out when I say all those syllables, okay? But it just means that we are made one again with God through the substitutionary work of Jesus, as Him being our substitute. It was His life for our lives once for all. But it doesn't matter if you know what it's called. You know, there's lots of people that know what substitutionary atonement means. They know those words, but they don't believe what it means. That's what matters. Not if you know what it's called, if you believe what it means. What it means is that every thought that you've had, every attitude that you've had, every action that you have done in which you have failed to meet God's standards for which you have earned his wrath, Jesus willingly took those upon himself. He didn't get drugged to the cross. Do you know that? He went to the cross for you. And so do you see the purifying power of that sacrifice? Jesus can deal perfectly with our guilt, not because he makes us feel better about ourselves, but because he makes us better. He gave himself his righteousness, his obedience, his life, perfect lived life. And he takes our sins, our failures, our wrongdoings upon himself. That's why Ephesians, Ephesians 1, it says that we are holy and blameless before God. You just read past that and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places with everything. He chose us in Christ that we would be holy and blameless before him. What does that mean? That Jesus cleanses us to the innermost so he can save you to the uttermost. And listen, we, it's a crazy reality to consider that we are blameless before God. What that means is in God's eyes, you are holy and blameless today, okay? And remember what shame is? Do you remember what shame is? It's a sense of failure where? In the eyes of another, And so now what what 
the gospel is telling us is that in the eyes of the only one whose opinion matters, not a bunch of people on TikTok, not whatever your boss says, not even your family standard. It's before God that you must give an account. And how are you seen there? Holy and blameless. What does that mean? What's the opposite of shame? Honor. Honor is the opposite of shame. So Jesus has taken our shame and given you honor. How is there a greater honor than this, that the son of God would say my life for your life? What would be the greater honor? The son of God, the king of the universe says my life for yours. I'll stand in for you. That is what we have in Christ and in our high priest. It's the only way that your guilt and your shame before God will be dealt with. It's not a way, it is the way. Because he's the only one who can redeem all of you, okay? And so if you are here today, and some of you are here today and you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never actually said, I'm gonna receive your life for my life, Jesus, okay? Maybe you've been around church your whole life. Like since you could walk, you've been walking into church and you've been trying so hard to be a good person. You've been trying so hard to do enough to get the memories of all that junk that you've done out of your mind and you can't do it. My hope for you today is that you would be like the men and women who heard the preaching of Peter in Acts chapter two. That you would be Did you hear about the love of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus? And you'd be cut to the very heart, okay? Why do you need to be cut to the heart? Because that's where you need healing at. And so that you'd be cut to the heart and say, I am guilty before God, okay? And that my hope you would be like those people and you'd say, brothers, what shall we do? What am I supposed to do now? I see that I am guilty. I don't just feel guilty. I am guilty. What do I do? And I would tell you the same thing that Peter told them that day, the same thing that preachers have been preaching faithfully ever since. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you do, the promise of the scriptures is unfailing and unwavering. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Not might be saved or could be saved. You will be saved, eternally reconciled to God in his presence in the fullness of joy beyond time. That's the promise for you. But you see, some of you, I know that you have trusted in Jesus. You have repented and you have believed. But your faith today, your worship today is weak. And the reason why is that some of you are still turning to lesser priests. You're still day to day, week to week, failure to failure, running not to the high priest, but to a lesser one. Not to the perfect priest, but to a limited one. Who can't deal with your conscience because they can't forgive your sin. You are carrying, listen, you are carrying and it shows It shows in your short temper. It shows in your your hopelessness. It shows in your attitude. It shows to everyone around you that you are weighed down, carrying guilt and shame that Jesus has dealt with. He's already dealt with it. So what that means is that you are carrying guilt and shame that does not belong to you anymore. It doesn't belong to you anymore. And today... 
Not some other day. Today is the day to set that down. To take it to the feet of the perfect priest who will look you straight in your eyes and say, it's true, you have not met God's standards. It's true, you have not been perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, but I have been on your behalf. You know, shame pulls our eyes down, doesn't it? How can you know if somebody's walking in shame? They will not look at your eyes. What Jesus, I think, in his sovereignty, this text for you today is pulling your eyes to his, saying, look again at my scars. Look at these scars. They're not for nothing. They weren't for fun. They weren't for somebody else. These scars are for you. And what is being told to you is the same thing as Jesus said from the cross. It is finished, church. It is finished for you. It was once for all. But, you know, look back at Hebrews 9.14. It it says that God purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Listen, Jesus purifies our consciences. He deals with your guilt and shame, not so that you can feel better while you go about your business. Okay? Some of you, you're just saying, okay, great, Jesus forgives me. Now I can go do what I want to do. And you are missing the point. He sets us free to be about his business, not ours, to serve the living God, not to get his approval, but because you already have it. And in your reluctance, listen, in your reluctance to receive Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf as fully sufficient, not half sufficient, not maybe sufficient, fully sufficient for you, your reluctance to receive that is actually robbing your life of worship. It's robbing it. I wonder how many of you, how many of you have have failed to step into some sort of leadership among God's people because you feel disqualified from serving God because of guilt that's no longer yours. I wonder how many of you are keeping the gospel from your neighbors and from your friends and from your family because you think there's no, I have no business sharing about a Jesus who I have failed so many times. So you won't tell them the gospel. I, I wonder how many dads are just letting discipleship moments pass them by because they've been impatient jerks to their kids. Repent and believe. Repent in front of them. All you will be telling them is that we need a Jesus that can actually rescue us from our brokenness. I wonder how many of you have stopped dreaming about heaven. Stop really wondering what it will be like when God brings us with him into eternity. You've stopped dreaming about it and you've settled for a new car or a new relationship or a new something because you're afraid that God really won't bring you into that place with him because of your guilt. I wonder how many of you have stopped taking risky steps in following Jesus because you know that he has seen all the ways that your addiction has played out in your life. You're pulled back. Your life of worship is getting robbed because of undealt with guilt that is not yours anymore. And it doesn't just interrupt our service to God. It interrupts our fellowship with God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, you know what happened after they sinned? What did they do? Where'd they go? They went and hid from God. And that's what we do 
and we're missing fellowship with him. We're missing the joy of participating in what he is doing because we're carrying, we're carrying guilt with us that's already been taken by Jesus. And so listen to me. Listen really close. If you are in Christ, you trusted in Jesus, that is not who you are anymore. There's this famous scene in Goodwill Hunting where uh, Robin Williams, who's a therapist, he is talking to Matt Damon, who's like an abused genius. And he wants him to hear that his abuse was not his fault. So over and over again, this is the most powerful scene in this movie, right? It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And he says it over and over again until Matt Damon breaks down and receives that reality, okay? Now, some of you, the world is broken, Okay? And some of you have had wrong things done to you. You have had wrong things done to you that are not your fault. Okay? Hear me saying that. But all of us in this broken world have done wrong things that are our fault. Some of you have had wrong things done to you that are not your fault. Okay? But all of us have done wrong things and they are our fault. Okay? But God is telling you today is that is that is not who you are anymore those wrong things that you have done that's not who you are anymore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come that's not who you are anymore and you're like, but I don't feel like it. I don't feel like I'm a new creation. I feel like I'm still a bunch of this old creation. Still doing all these wrong things. What do I do? My question for you this morning, what's your application of this today, is, is to ask the question, what are you doing with your guilt when it surfaces in your conscience? Where are you taking your guilt when it surfaces in your conscience? There's a bunch of years ago, it got pointed out to me this week, Forbes wrote an article about guilt for some reason. It's like a financial magazine. And it said, six signs you are suffering from guilt and probably don't know it. And the author of this article, they come to this conclusion at the end. It's, it's, this is what he says. The good news is that resolving guilt permanently is one declarative statement away and need not involve decades of psychoanalysis. As Oscar Wilde observed, it is the confession, not the priest, that gives us absolution, that takes away your guilt. Fess up, and you can free yourself. <sighs> this is so cheap, and it doesn't work. It's not confession that takes away your guilt. It is the priest, but not any priest. It must be the one priest who can deal with your guilt. Confession does matter. The article gets it half right. Confession does matter, but it matters what priest you're confessing that to. Because only one can deal with your guilt, and you need to bring it to him. Bring that to him. 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So often we don't live in the fullness of our forgiveness because we fail to believe that we are cleansed, to understand that you're cleansed, and you won't experience that by hiding from God. You can come out from hiding and go to him. That's the only way that you'll experience that. I told my daughter, who was dealing with her guilt of coloring on something she shouldn't, 
you know, she was so sad, just I'm trying to fix it, I'm trying to fix it, I'm trying to fix it, Dad. I just went over to her and I took this thing away and I just wiped it clean. And you know, it wasn't even hard. It was super easy, actually. And she just took off running. She runs off. Just going off the rest of my life, you know. So I said, come back, come back, Emma. Come here. Why? Because I wanted her to hear something that was very, much more important than that moment. I don't want her to miss the bigger truth. There are things that we cannot clean up. There are things in our hearts that we cannot fix. But if we bring them to Jesus, he can cleanse us. You, today, that thing that's haunting you, today. So I know the enemy, we have a spiritual enemy. He whispers crazy things to us. Maybe even now trying to convince you that freedom would actually be found by covering that thing up. Maybe even now trying to convince you that you're beyond the rescue of Jesus. Okay? Some of you, that whisper will come to you this week, and I want you to not be surprised. And I want to tell you these lyrics, not from Ed Sheeran or Taylor Swift or anybody else. Somebody who knows the kind of power that our high priest has, this is what they say. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed, that I am cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation. Oh, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray, singing the first verse so conveniently over me. He's forgotten the refrain. Satan will try to keep you from remembering the refrain of the song of those who have had eternal redemption secured for them. What's the refrain? Jesus saves. Jesus saves forever. He is the perfect priest who can deal perfectly with your guilt because he can actually take away your sin. My hope is that you would know it and never forget it, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us? To, I, I just am dreaming about a church that would walk from this building, that would drive away from this space into the rest of this day and week and season of life, walking with unbelievable freedom. Would you lift up eyes in this room today and have them meet your gaze, King Jesus, a gaze that's full of grace and full of truth, a gaze that tells us the truth about ourselves that we need a Savior and we can never clean up the mess that we've made. But we have a Savior who can do that. He's unlike anybody. So would you convince us of that, Holy Spirit? We need you. We need you so bad. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.